If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello and welcome to December's BBC History Magazine podcast. My name is Dave Musgrove and I'm the editor of the magazine. And I'm Rob Attar, the deputy editor. And I'm Charlotte Hodgman, the section editor. So, coming up this month, we have... After one battle, um, it's known that many hundred uh, of the rebels were actually slain in cold blood by their captors. That was Mark Stoyle on the prayer book revolt. They threw a brick at the window and at that point the young uh, anarchists decided to fire back. And that was Clive Bloom on Edwardian terrorism in London. This monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. In 1549, the introduction of a new book of common prayer printed in English rather than Latin saw the people of Devon and Cornwall explode into rebellion in defence of their traditional forms of worship. Men and women fell in their thousands as royalist forces crushed the rebels in a series of bloody battles fought around Exeter. I spoke to Mark Stoyle, Professor of History at Southampton University, about what drove the rebels to take on the crown and why, ultimately, they failed. OK, so Mark, most historians agree that the Prayer Book Rebellion was the result of a culmination of grievances that had been building up years before the rebellion actually broke out in southwest England in 1549. Could you perhaps give us a little background to this? 
Yes, well, I think the thing is that what people were facing was a long accumulation of religious changes which had been underway uh, for some years. Obviously, in the 1530s, after Henry VIII had broken with Rome, there'd been a number of changes that had been brought through um, to religious practice, um, which had already um, upset and disturbed the people in many ways. Um, during the later years of Henry's reign, and um, from the fifth, that 1540 onwards, uh, things seemed to have become a bit quieter, and so I think they were thinking the worst of the sort of the, the religious changes were over. But when uh, the new government of um, Edward VI came in under Protector Somerset, and um, suddenly a whole new sort of flood of religious changes was unleashed upon the English people. But why would the introduction of a new Book of Common Prayer have generated such an extreme reaction in Devon and Cornwall in particular? Well, I think you have to, it's, it's connected with the fact that so many other things have been happening before. Um, they'd already seen um, orders have been brought into place to take out the images in the churches and to destroy them. Um, they'd seen uh, the monasteries dissolved. Uh, they'd seen the chantries dissolved. And at the very same time that the new book came out, um, commissioners were actually touring the countryside, um, taking um, an inventories of the church goods of the various parishes um, across the whole country. And I think, again, throughout the realm, people were terrified um, that these inventories um, were the sort of the softening up, if you like, for actually seizing church goods as well. So there'd been this whole series of attacks, if you like, on everyday uh, religious life. Uh, and now they feared, um, or they, they certainly believed that with the introduction of the new prayer book, um, you know, the very, the very words of the mass itself, which they'd been used to for so long uh, and revered, uh, were being changed and taken away from them. So I think for many people, the introduction of this new prayer book was seen as the final straw. Because many of them probably wouldn't have spoken English at all, would they? Well, certainly in some parts of this particular region, that was the case. Obviously, uh, in Devon and um, the eastern parts of Cornwall, um, everyone spoke English. Uh, but in the far west of Cornwall, there were still quite large numbers of people um, who only spoke the Cornish language, which is uh, a form of Welsh, if you like, or is related to Welsh. Um, and so they would have been particularly upset, not only because they were um, um, furious about the religious changes, which were upsetting everyone else, but also because they saw that uh, with the removal of the, the Latin mass, which they'd had before, they were now going to be forced to have to listen um, to a service in English. And so in that way, the English language was sort of intruded upon those parts of Cornwall, which were still Cornish-speaking. Yeah, I mean, do you think rebellion was inevitable after the, the prayer bit was enforced? Well, I think to say inevitable would probably be going too far. I think um, it was possible um, that the prayer book could have been introduced uh, without such a, a sort of a huge popular reaction. Um, but I think what was necessary for that to have happened would have been for the forces of law and order to have stepped in very quickly um, to crush any manifestations of uh, unrest which did occur. And that just doesn't seem to have been the case. The fact that the rebellion was able to take fire uh, first in Cornwall and then in Devon seems to have been at least in part because the local gentry weren't quick enough to nip it in the bud. I mean, how seriously did central government take the rebellion and, and why did it take them so long to react? Well, I mean, they certainly took it seriously, um, but you must remember, obviously, at this time, the West Country was a long way away from London, and it took a long time for news of what was actually going on to filter in. Um, initially, uh, Protector Somerset, who is himself in the capital, doesn't seem to have uh, realised what was going on in Cornwall. He got news of the uh, rising which broke out in Devon at Sanford Courtney, um, and he sent down messages ordering the local justices to deal with that, and he was sort of getting himself ready uh, to deal with what he 
believed to be a fairly minor disturbance centred uh, in the middle of Devonshire, but he doesn't seem to have realised for several weeks that was a much bigger and more serious rebellion that had already taken place in Cornwall and that um, uh, uh, an army of Cornish rebels was by this time sweeping over the border into Devon uh, to link up with their neighbours. So I think he just wasn't aware of the, uh, the size of the threat which was facing him. Um, a crucial point in the uprising was the rebels' decision to besiege Exeter in July 1549. Why were they unable to do this and, and was this failure key to their eventual defeat, do you think? I think in many ways one could argue that. Um, I think that there are two parts of your question there, really. The, the reason that they were keen to take Exeter was because, of course, it was the regional capital. Um, at this time, it was the fifth or sixth largest city in the whole kingdom, and it contained huge amounts of uh, men uh, and uh, manpower, obviously, for their armies and wealth as well. And if they'd been able to capture it, it would have given them a crucial base, and also, in a sense, it would have allowed them to present a more sort of legitimate face to the world in that they would then have controlled the whole of Devon and Cornwall, virtually the whole of it. Um, so that was why they were so keen to take it uh, and they, I think they thought that it would be a relatively easy thing to do. Um, the second part of your question is why did they fail? And I think probably the best answer to that would be that on this particular occasion, uh, there were local governors who stood firm against them. Uh, there were a number of men in Exeter who were determined not to give up the city to the rebels, um, a few of them Protestants, but more who were just determined to remain loyal to the king. And the fact that they actually set their face against the rebels um, and um, made preparations to resist them um, was rather different in some ways to what had happened before uh, amongst some of the gentry um, in Cornwall and in the country areas of Devon. And then once the, once the siege did begin, there were other crucial factors which helped to explain why the rebels were unable to take the city. First, I should probably point out that uh, during the latter years of Henry VIII's reign, there had been a number of um, emergencies when England was very worried about threats from abroad, from France and Spain. And as a result of this, a huge amount of work had been done on the Exeter city defences. The walls had been strengthened, the city ditches had been redug, and in 1545, um, a collection of great cannon or ordnance had actually been bought uh, for the defence of the city. So all of these defensive preparations which had been made against foreign enemies meant that when the rebels actually arrived on the scene and the city governors decided to resist them, um, they had uh, a, great, uh, a much better chance of doing so than they would have done just 20 years before. The rebels didn't have many cannon. Um, they weren't really prepared um, for siege warfare, which is complex and very expensive. And thus, Exeter was able to hold out against, against them uh, much more successfully than an unfortified town would have been able to do. I suppose, um, I mean, you mentioned in the feature that there would have been quite a few people who would have been maybe supportive of the rebels. Um, did this kind of cause some concern for some of the city governors? Oh, yes, absolutely. And again, I think this is one of the reasons why the rebels were initially so confident. They knew that they had many supporters within the town walls. There were many Exeter men and women who actually wanted to have the rebels in and said, let, let, let our neighbours come in and join us. So I think they thought that it would be a bit of a walkover. Um, but in fact, um, the town governors, those who were determined to resist, even though there were some of the town governors themselves who were Catholics and quite sympathetic to the rebels, they managed to hold together. They managed to hold their nerve, to keep a grip on the city defences and to either neutralise or to overawe uh, those of the citizens who were favourable to the private rebels. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. 
Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It's amazing to me how they just go back and they keep reforming after, you know, some really pretty bloody battles and um, you know some of the worst that the southwest has seen why were the royal forces so brutal and what would have happened to the captured rebels well i mean i think one of the reasons the royal forces were so brutal was because they were determined to put this rebellion down um the the uprising had been going on for for, for a number of weeks six seven weeks the whole of the southwest by this time virtually was in rebellion against the crown and the royal forces were determined to deal with this um, they were terrified about what would happen if the rebellion spread um, they also feared what would happen to, to them themselves if they were captured by the rebels i think the brutality of the royal forces then was partly because um, of, of the fact that they were frightened of the rebels, what they might do if they defeated them. Also, there's the fact there were large numbers of mercenaries in the ranks of the Royal Army, and they may have been less inclined to show mercy uh, towards English commoners than the English gentlemen would have been. Um, but that's something of a moot point, because in fact, some of the people who seem to have been responsible for the greatest outrages were in fact English commanders of these armies. Um, and turning to your point about um, what would have happened to the captured rebels, well, I think in many cases their treatment was very brutal indeed. After one battle, um, it's known that many hundred uh, of the rebels were actually slain in cold blood by their captors. And we think that this was done because uh, the royal forces were fearing that they were about to be counterattacked by the rebels, uh, and thus they were afraid that the, the large number of captors that they had with them might have escaped and turned against them. But even so, this was a very bloody thing to have done. And once the, the rebel forces had all been defeated, and there was no such excuse for brutality, uh, they continued to execute large numbers of people. And we know that gallows were erected all over the West Country, uh, that martial law was imposed, uh, and that large numbers of people uh, were strung up and hanged for having taken part in the rebellion, or even in a number of cases, just on suspicion of having done so. 
I mean, you've mentioned already some of the uniquely Cornish reasons um, for the rebellion. Was was this rebellion confined to the southwest, or were there other disturbances elsewhere in the country? No, I mean, one of the crucial things that I should make clear here is that this was a crisis year for the whole of England. Um, it was looked back on later as the commotion time, uh, that's to say the interaction time, or the camping time. And the reason they used this particular term, the camping time, was because camps were set up all over the south of England and parts of the north as well by rebel groups. We know that at least 25 English counties were um, affected by these risings during 1549. And you asked me earlier, why it took the government so long to react to the Southwestern Rebellion. And I think one of the reasons, one of the most important ones, was the fact that they were also dealing uh, with huge rebellions elsewhere. Um, on the 1st of July, just about at the time when Somerset was beginning to realise how serious the rebellions in the Southwest were, he summoned uh, a number of gentlemen to meet him at Windsor Castle. And we think this may well have been in order to raise a large army to deal with the Western rebels. But almost as soon as that happened, uh, disturbances broke out all over the home counties and in particular in East Anglia and by the middle of July some 10 to 12,000 rebels were gathered outside Norwich um, again the regional capital of that region um, uh, besieging it um, and threatening the government and asking for all sorts of grievances of their own to be satisfied um, so really Protector Somerset um, and the, the boy king were faced with rebellion on an almost unprecedented scale at this time why do you think the Prayer Rebellion actually failed? Well, it certainly didn't fail because of any lack of commitment on the parts of the rebels themselves. I mean, as we've seen, they were prepared to fight to the death in defence of their cause. So there's an enormous amount of zeal um, on the rebels' part. I think their rebellion probably failed um, in part because obviously they, they were the men of just two counties um, taking on um, the strength of, of uh, a much greater part of the realm. Um, but also I think they made some sort of um, some strategic decisions that perhaps weren't very wise. Um, I think by we can see completely why they wanted to take the city of Exeter and why they felt that if they didn't take it and they marched onto the east, it might be a thorn in their sides. But really, from their point of view, I think one of their, their greatest strengths was probably that of surprise. They needed to march quickly towards London and to try and gather up support elsewhere. We know that there were murmurings of support for them uh, in Somerset and in Wiltshire. And I think if they'd marched really quickly towards London, um, the whole protest might have snowballed and gathered additional strength. But by uh, turning back um, from London and settling down to besiege Exeter, in a way, they gave the government precious time um, to sort of collect its thoughts and gather its forces. And so that particular decision may have been the crucial mistake, which prevented them um, from being able to march further to the east and gather up the reservoirs of support, which might have been waiting for them there. And also, of course, I think the other thing to bear in mind is that they simply didn't have the same strength as the royal forces. Most of the prayer book rebels uh, were, were common men, ordinary people. They were armed uh, with pikes and possibly some sort of primitive firearms, um, but they didn't have large numbers of horsemen, they didn't have large numbers of cannon, um, they didn't have a great deal of training, they didn't have any of the sort of the military technology which the Crown could call upon. And so in that way, uh, the two forces were not that evenly matched. And it was always very likely that once the Crown could divest itself of its other problems elsewhere and bring a substantial force to bear against these um, uh, rebels in the West, that they would defeat them. That was Mark Stoll on the Prayer Book Rebellion. You can read more about this in our latest issue. Now, before we go on to our last interview, we've got a little extra for you. 
To commemorate their first anniversary, the team that produces the BBC World Service's daily history series, Witness, have put together a few of the highlights of their year. Alan Johnston, one of the Witness presenters, introduces this selection. Witness, the daily history programme of the BBC World Service, is celebrating its first year on air. Our brief to hear from people who have lived through some of the great historic moments of our time. We've spoken to hundreds of witnesses and they've told us astonishing stories. Here's a taste of some of them, starting with Ernst Michel. In 1945, he was a young Holocaust survivor turned journalist who found himself reporting on the Nuremberg trials from the press gallery. I wanted to jump down. Why did you do this? What had we done to you? Why did you kill my parents, my friends? But no, I can't do that. I am now a correspondent, as incredible as it may sound, for the German news agency Dana reporting from the Nuremberg trial. And I had to contain myself. But nevertheless, I could never, never forget who I was, what had happened to me, and to sit there while the 21 top leaders of the Nazi Germany are being brought to trial. Hermann Goering was the most senior Nazi in the dock and the only major German politician to be tried. From the start, he was dismissive of the cause and attempted to cut a blustering, almost swaggering figure. One day during the intermission, I'm walking outside and a man comes over and says to me, are you Ernest Michel who writes the stories? And I say, yes. You really were in Auschwitz? And I say, yes, I was. Well, I'm Robert Stammer. I'm the defense attorney of Hermann Goering. So Stalmer told me, we read your articles, and Goering wanted to know whether you might be willing to meet with him. A few days later, Stalmer picked me up after the sessions were over and took me downstairs where all the cells of the defendants were. And the cell opens, and I walk in following Stalmer, and there is Hermann Goering getting up and want to shake hands. And I told myself, what the hell am I doing here? I'm going to interview the top Nazi left who was responsible for what happened to us Jews during World War II. And I could not handle it. I couldn't get a word out. I pulled my hand back and I went to the MP at the door and let me out. And the last thing I remember is Goering standing there with his hand out, with his mouth open, and I will never forget that moment in my life. Later, did you perhaps regret not having found the words to put to him? No, I never have. Look, I was at that time 23 years old. I had never experienced anything like this before. I simply couldn't handle it. And I have never regretted to do this day that I did not share one single word with the top Nazi left in Nuremberg. Then there was the story we heard from Najiba. In December 1979, she was just a little girl who found herself trapped with her mother and brother in the Afghan presidential palace as Soviet troops overran Kabul. We heard a knock in the door. We will fire. We, will, we are counting up to three and we will start shooting. And um, my mother is a very wise woman. Start shouting, children and women, children and women, children and women. And then they start saying the same thing and open the door. And as the door opened, I still remember. I remember this circle, half circle of soldiers standing with their weapon, directing to us, towards us. 
But then the moment they saw us, I don't know, they must have been thinking that maybe we were Russians because I had blonde hair. My mother was very light. My brother was very light, fair skin. Uh, and then I've heard this word in Tajiki. Um, are they ours? Are they are they our people? And and then the the weapon went down. So we start coming down, and the things I saw, my God, people on the floor. You know, it's um, like a scene from a nightmare movies. The whole place was dark, but there, there was some fire outside, and the light from that fire was coming in, so you could see it was lighting the place. Water, there was a lot of water, um, glass, broken glass. You say there were people on the floor. Yes. Were they alive? No, 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 dead bodies. Are we talking two or three? I mean, how many did you see? I don't remember, maybe. It was not two or three, there were a lot of people. And what, what was happening to you as an 11-year-old at that time? I don't actually remember. The only thing I remember that I want more. I mean, I used to call more my mother. I don't want to be separated from more. I mean, and I was making sure I can see her olive color dress behind me. That was the only thing I don't. And um, it's a strange thing. You have a different um, understanding of the world. I don't think you understand at that age the gravity of what's happening to you. Ahmed Katrada was one of the anti-apartheid activists jailed alongside Nelson Mandela on Robben Island. And even in prison, apartheid's rules were strictly observed. All my colleagues, because they were black, they had to wear short trousers, no socks. And under the law, I was given long trousers and socks and the rest of the clothing was the same. The rationale behind short trousers is all blacks, regardless of age, were boys, and boys wear short trousers. When it came to food, again there was discrimination. The same food in the morning, porridge, soup, coffee. I, being an Indian, was given a little more sugar than Mandela. David Goodman was a New York teenager who took a phone call telling him that the body of his brother, a young civil rights activist, had been found in a shallow grave in Mississippi. August 4th was the day before my father's uh, birthday. His uh, 50th birthday was the next day, August 5th. So they went out to a concert. My parents liked music. And I was alone at home. And the phone rang and I picked it up. And um, the voice on the other end said, who is this? And I said, David Goodman. He said, uh, oh, you're Andy's brother, right? I said, yes. I knew who it was. And he said, uh, well, where are your parents? I'd like to talk to them. This is President Johnson. And he said, they're out. And there was a pause on the phone. And he said, well, I got some bad news for you. We found the body of your brother. We've even told the story of the dog, Pickles, who found the missing World Cup football trophy in 1966. I said, well, I'm going out. I'll take Pickles out with me and give him a run. And he was sniffing around my neighbour's car's front wheel, so... Um, I walked over and said, what is it then, Pick? And, and he's sniffing at this parcel laying on the floor, which was uh, 
wrapped in newspaper and very tightly bound in string all the way up. At that time, uh, the IRA was uh, active and I picked it up. It was quite heavy. I thought, oh, it's a bomb. I put it down. Curiosity beat me. I picked it up again and I tore a bit of the paper off and I could see it was a statuette at the top. And as I tore around, it said Brazil, West Germany, Italy... And being a football fan, it suddenly come to me, oh, it's the World Cup. I dashed back indoors and said to my wife, I, I think I found the World Cup. My wife, being a non-sporting woman, she said, what's the World Cup like? They're the full World Cup. And when Dave Corbett rushed to his nearest police station, they were equally underwhelmed. And I burst through the doors and behind the desk was a big sergeant with a moustache and I slammed it onto the counter and I said to him, I think I've found the World Cup. And his words will always remain with me. That's not very World cup is it? So if you'd like to hear more, we're on the air every weekday morning on the World Service. Or you could subscribe to The Witness podcast, bbcworldservice.com slash podcasts. Now for our last interview. I've had a chat with Clive Bloom, Emeritus Professor of History at Middlesex University, about a rather odd incident involving anarchists, guns, robbery, police and Winston Churchill. It all happened in London 100 years ago. We're going to talk about the siege of Sydney Street, so we just need to just sort of quickly review the facts of, of, of the story as we know it. So it's basically a shootout between the police and a band of East European revolutionaries, and they got themselves holed up in a tenement on an East London street after they, they'd made a botched robbery attempt on a jeweller's. So is that, is that pretty much the story? That's pretty much the story. Um, there were a number of Latvians, we don't know how many, but quite a large group of them who were revolutionaries who had escaped from Latvia after the failed 1905 revolution against Russia. Uh, many of them were nationalists, some of them were anarchists, uh, some of them were Bolsheviks. And um, they earned their living, essentially, by expropriating, or we will call it stealing, um, from shops or from companies in order to uh, send money back to the homeland, mainly to Lenin, to uh, finance the revolution. Uh, this group were um, planning to rob H.S. Harris's at 119 Houndsditch um, on the 16th of December 1910. Um, when they did so, they tried to drill in through the back from exchange buildings. Um, they were going to melt the safe with some oxyacetylene-type equipment that they bought from another anarchist called uh, Malatesta. Uh, once they started to drill, of course, it was uh, the Jewish Sabbath. This was a Jewish area, and uh, it was very quiet, so people heard them and reported them. And uh, a constable piper was asked to go round and knock on the door and see what was going on. Constable Piper did so. He realized something strange was going on, so he called four other colleagues to come and try and um, see what was going on. There were two uh, plainclothes men, three policemen. And they turned up, um, it was just around the corner from uh, Bishopsgate, um, City of London Police Station. They turned up, they knocked on the door. Uh, Constable Piper said, is the missus in? for some reason or other, and the door was opened by a, a man called Gardstein, who was one of the revolutionaries, the leader of the group. Uh, he said no, shut the door, but the policeman uh, insisted, um, they opened it again, and at that point, uh, one of the um, revolutionaries came down the stairs and started firing at the policeman. Uh, he um, killed three and injured two. 
and and then conditions escalated and and we get to the point where the terrorists then a, f- a few weeks later get holed up in Sydney Street is that right Yes that's right um what happened was the um the police were now alerted to a very dangerous gang who they had no idea existed previous to this point um they didn't have translators so no one knew what was going on these people spoke um latvian or they spoke um russian uh, the jewish people in the area spoke yiddish so they didn't actually know what was going on but luckily for them um the the landlord of um the um robbers came round and um, uh, explained to the police what was going on. He may have been a double agent, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the police then, on the 2nd of January, got that tip off. On the 3rd of January, 1911, they surrounded what they thought were a number of uh, gangsters in Sydney Street, in 100 Sydney Street. Um, it turned out there were only two, but the police thought there was uh, the uh, senior uh, um, revolutionary there called Peter the Painter. And Peter the Painter was the organizer for the whole group. Gardstein, who had opened the door to the policeman in the first robbery, had been shot uh, by accident or by intent by one of his own men and had died in um, 59 Grove Street, uh, which was the headquarters of the revolutionaries. Now, what, what's, what becomes odd to me is what happens next. is, is the, the police seem to be curiously amateurish about the whole business. I mean, you, the, the point you made about the constable knocking on the door and saying, what did you say, is the missus in? Is that, is that what you said? Yes. Um, um, and, well, they become even more amateurish. They yes. surround the buildings with 200 armed policemen, which is a rather lot of policemen. Um, they, they, um, they then go and knock on the door, uh, which seems a bit bizarre considering how dangerous the, uh, the revolutionaries are. They're all armed, the revolutionaries are all armed with um, machine pistols, German-made machine pistols, very accurate and uh, can fire for um, uh, over a 1,000 yards with accuracy. So the police only really have weapons that can fire for 100 yards with accuracy. So they're really taking their lives in their hands. Inspector Wensley, who was in charge of the case, sent some policemen to knock on the door. They knocked on the door, nothing happened. They threw some stones at the door, believe it or not, nothing happened. They threw a brick at the window. And at that point, the um, uh, anarchists decided to fire back and wounded one of the officers who tried to uh, enter the building. And then, and then, even stranger still, Winston Churchill turns up. Indeed. Uh, Winston Churchill, as Home Secretary, got told what was going on. He, was, he, he jumped out of his bath and grabbed his purdy uh, um, shotgun and said, I must see what's going on. So he rushed down to the siege, which was considered completely unacceptable, and um, ordered up the Scots Guards from the Tower of London to come and attend. So if you can imagine now, there's a very big crowd. There's 200 policemen, there's inspectors and others. Everybody's armed. Uh, all the police have got shotguns. Uh, Winston Churchill is hiding behind the door of, or the gate of a pub called the Rising Sun. And uh, there's uh, a, a soldiers cordoning off the road both ends. So it's an amazing array of, of firepower. And the amazing thing is, there were only, in the end, two revolutionaries in the house. Peter the Painter wasn't present. And uh, a man called Fritz Zvars and another called Jakob. And they were able to hold this huge mass of um, guns away from them because they just had superior weaponry. So what was the, what was the final outcome? The final outcome was the, the house caught fire. One of the, uh, it was believed that the gas uh, pipe, a gas pipe had been fractured. The house caught fire. The uh, revolutionaries died, one possibly uh, dying of a bullet, one maybe from asphyxiation, we're not 
quite sure. Um, the firemen were not allowed to go and put the fire out or sort the fire out because they thought it was too dangerous. When they did turn up, the whole house collapsed on them and a number were injured. So it was a bit of a farce. Um, Winston Churchill went back and said how great and exciting the whole event had been. He was criticised by the Prime Minister. He was criticised by um, the King. King George V criticised him. And um, indeed, all the foreign powers, France, Germany, Russia, all criticised the operation as being farcical. So in the end, it turned into the tragedy at Hounsditch turned into a farce at Sydney Street. Now, there's, there must have been quite a media circus surrounding this because we've got some, some amazing photos. We've got a photo of Churchill standing behind this door. We can see him there, and we've got photos of the police shooting. And, and, and so there must have been people there taking photos. Everyone must have known mm. about this event. What was the public's reaction to it? The, well, the public's reaction when Winston Churchill turned up because uh, the public didn't like immigrants in the East End. They felt there was enough immigrants already in the East End. And they actually shouted at him, shoot him. Um, they booed and catcalled um, when the film, there was a little film taken uh, of their siege, and that was shown in cinemas, which must have been very early time, but nevertheless shown in cinemas, and people screamed and shouted at the cinema screen uh, um, to get rid of Churchill. Churchill was extremely unpopular, and the fact that he turned up in the East End to sort of nose around, if you like, uh, slumming it almost, uh, was even a greater insult. So people were, were more intent on having a go at Winston Churchill than they were at having a go at uh, the, the anarchists, who they seem to be relatively um, benign about. Right. So what, so what, um, what happened after this then? Did the rest of the gang get rounded up or did they just The rest of the gang got rounded up. Everybody got arrested. Um, they were hauled off uh, to the Guildhall for trial. Um, but the police had as far as they were concerned, got one man who had died at Houndsditch, uh, Gardstein, and two revolutionaries who had died in the house. And as far as they were concerned, they were the perpetrators of the murders of the original policemen. And therefore, they closed the case, essentially. And they were saying, well, this is finished. The fact of the matter was that almost all the people they rounded up were implicated. One of the people, Jacob Peters, was the shooter in the initial incident. He was acquitted for lack of evidence, and he went back to Russia and actually became central to uh, Stalin's secret police. Okay, and finally, um, if if one was wandering the streets of London today, is there anything that you can see in commemoration of this event, or has it been been broadly forgotten in in that part of of town? It's it's broadly been forgotten. You can, however, go to uh, 119 uh, 119 Houndsditch, which uh, now isn't, uh, of course, what it was, but nevertheless, those buildings still are on the same site as the original buildings. All the original buildings have been demolished, exchanged buildings, houses, buildings, etc. But nevertheless, you can go there, and uh, you can walk down Cutler Street where they ran away. Uh, You can also go to Sydney Street, where uh, at the end of Sydney Street, the uh, blocks of flats are actually named after Peter the Painter, the revolutionary, rather than the, the policeman who got killed or injured. So it's rather ironic. Thank you, Clive. Clive Bloom is author of Violent London, 2,000 Years of Riots, Rebels and Revolts, which is published by Palgrave. His website is clivebloom.com, and you can read more about the siege of Sydney Street in this month's BBC History magazine. BBC History magazine is published every four weeks in the UK and costs £3.80. Look out for it in your local newsagent or supermarket or take advantage of one of our great subscription deals, whether you're in the UK or overseas. Details are in the magazine and on our website at bbchistorymagazine.com. 
Well, that's it for our December 2010 podcast. We're not done for the year yet, though, because we'll be releasing a special Christmas history quiz in a few weeks. So do look out for that. Thanks for listening. <laughs>